So just before we get going, I want to invite everybody uh, to next week's SACPA talk, which is uh, the Nature Conservancy of Canada protecting our grasslands. Um, hopefully, you will all be able to make it out for that one. Um, I want to remind everybody that the upcoming sessions are listed on SACPA's website, which is www.sacpa.ca. Uh, the sessions can be heard on audio and as a podcast from that website. And if you have ideas about how to improve the sessions or a session topic you'd like to see, there is a suggestion box available for your thoughts and comments. Thank you for coming. Okay. So, I should have looked around. We've got a microphone right over here that we'll be using for the Q&A. Um, and then, of course, uh, Dr. Thomas can stand right here. I'm going to restate the topic and the presenter's name, and I'd like to remind everyone that we are taking short, relevant comments um, and one or two respectful questions from you. So please stay on topic. Um, the topic again was, are women premiers in Canada less likely to be re-elected than men? That is the topic your questions can be about. And our speaker, of course, Dr. Melanie Thomas. All right. Uh, Dr. Thomas, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, so I'm going to start by just giving a couple of examples. 1982, I was uh, sitting for a job interview and I was asked, as a single parent, what would I do if anything sorry happened to, to my so, kids while I was Sorry to interrupt, could, could you just say who you are? Oh, sorry, Maria Fitzpatrick. Um, in uh, 1990 probably 1997 or 98, um, I was a parole officer in Edmonton and I um, had an argument with my supervisor uh, on the merits of one of my parolees not being suspended. And he said to me, you are just too aggressive. And I responded to him by saying, no, I was assertive. Uh, if I was aggressive, I probably would have had my hands around his throat. <laughs> and then we come to this election. So my question to you is, how do we change a societal attitude about um, when a, women a woman does something versus when a man does something? They can do the same thing, but one is, as I said in, in 1997, uh, a man would have been considered, you know, a strong advocate for his cases. He would have been assertive, but because I was a woman, I was aggressive. So can you tell yeah. me, how do we change that? Because my whole life, mm -hmm. I have lived with this. So thank you for that. Um, normally, I'm really good at bringing a room down with the answers I give to questions, so I'm going to try to be slightly uplifting first. Uh, we have a study where one of the things that's changed is that there seems to, at least for a period, have been an embargo on, or like people would apply a filter for some of this kind of stuff, so like things that you would have heard explicitly when you were in the mid 20th century, like you can't do that because you're a woman and that's not appropriate. That, I mean, as a, somebody who was a teenager in the 90s and it was all girl power and people were marketing on girl power, there was a, the idea that it wasn't okay to say that stuff anymore, which means that when we study it, we have to get people to tell us what they think without getting them to say that because um, 
if you ask somebody like how sexist or racist they are in a survey question, they're going to lie to you. Like, and we know this. The benign version of this is they lie about voter turnout as well because voting is pro-social, and people who didn't vote will say. I don't want to out myself as a non-voter, and so they lie about how much they vote, which is one of the reasons why our estimates in, say, election studies of voter turnout is much higher than what we have in, um, uh, that, according to official returns. So the good news is I can tell you that 80% of Canadians um, do not endorse sexist attitudes about women in politics. So we asked about whether or not people thought that men were naturally better leaders than women that women were too emotional for politics or that women were too nice for politics. And so 80% don't endorse these ideas. Um, that means, that, so here's, so that's my uplifting bit. Um, the depressing part is that 20% do. Um, these are disproportionately more likely to be men. So women will endorse at a level about one in 10. The 20 some odd percent is more likely to be men. But beyond that, it is ubiquitous across age, levels of education, ideology, partisanship, and so I am going to be, like I'm not surprised when people who are socially conservative will have pretty rigid ideas about gender roles, um, but it's the people who are ostensible feminists who then also say that men are naturally better leaders than women where I give them really hard side eye about that one because, yeah, publicly they say something very differently. Uh, how do you change this? Um, one of the things that comes through very clearly in the literature is that role model effects are very strong. And so when you see uh, people who traditionally have not exercised power or people who have been traditionally excluded from a particular position um, in positions of power, when that's what you see, then that changes your definition of normal. So when we had had a series of women who had served as Secretary of States for the United States, so this would be Madeleine Albright, um, Condoleezza Rice, like you don't have to agree with them, but there was, a, there, were, like, a, there was a generation of young American girls that thought that that role was filled by women. Um, similarly, like even with television programs, this is why Shonda, um, what is it, Shonda Land, um, I'm gonna, Shonda Rhimes, why some of her stuff is so important in terms of television precisely because it shows people who are traditionally and still marginalized in certain fields, it shows them in these positions of, um, either in medicine or in various other sorts of positions where we wouldn't normally expect to see them or where we know that they're underrepresented. And so, for politics, this is one of the reasons why, I have several reasons why I have no patience for political parties who cannot field a nominated set of candidates that looks like the population it is supposed to represent. I have a number of reasons why I have no patience for that, but, um, and I have to admit, this one is further down the list, but for me, it's say, I, I, politicians have a responsibility to make sure that like all of us are present in terms of who, like the bodies that will be represented. and. So this is but one of the reasons why I say that that's important. But those role model effects are huge. Like when Sweden was bringing more women into its legislature, its first gender equal parliament on the face of the planet, um, women's interest in politics lagged one election afterwards. So you'd elect more women, more women in the population were interested. You'd elect another woman, more women, and then so they, the gap just starts to close until they, until, so in women, in Sweden, women are as interested in politics as are men for the most part. And it's one of the only countries where we can see that. Other gender equal countries, like the more equal that becomes, the more you actually engage people in politics. So, Bev Mundell Atherstone, thank you so much. Dr. Melanie Thomas, it's been a joy to watch your progression through life. <laughs> it's just fabulous. Um, <clears throat> 
I find it absolutely horrible that the same things that happened to me as a young prof at the University of Lethbridge are still happening to you 40 years later. In the 1980s, I was asked, uh, I was told, uh, you're taking the job away from a man when I was the top candidate of 65 people. Mm -hmm. So um, this is pretty, <laughs> pretty dismal. Um, I'd just like to mention or just um, ask you about the cultural blindness um, aspect. You're talking about European countries and you're talking about Canada. Um, my husband and I lived in Pakistan and during that time we heard a researcher giving a gendered talk on the prime ministers in Eastern Asia. And at that time, Benazir Bhutto was the prime minister of Pakistan and we had had Indira Gandhi and there was Imelda Marcos in the Philippines and so on. And the analysis was that women could get into these high positions in Eastern Asia um, if they were widows and or, or orphans. Um, so just mention that and then wondering if the orphan effect had any impact on Rachel Notley being elected? Uh, so, yeah, when we studied this in terms of comparative politics, um, as somebody who studies Canada, Canada is a really interesting case study for comparison. Um, all of my students who take intro to Canadian politics at the university think that it's just like social studies 30 and that they're not going to learn anything. Uh, and I have to admit, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit that this is the reason why my fail rate is the highest in that particular class because it's not like social studies. And also Canada's really weird. Like we are a wonderfully weird place to study, which means that we're really good in terms of comparative politics. The difficulty is that if you've got like a post-industrial stable established democracy with settler institutions like Canada does, it means that we, comparing us to places like Pakistan, um, or India or even Israel or places like that starts to become a bit fraught because we're, we're dealing with very different sorts of things. Mm -hmm. The best comparative work on this that clearly didn't have the reservations that I do when I do this comparative work where they were looking at women's entry into what we call chief political executive positions, so president, prime minister, head of government at the national level. One of the things that comes through very clearly there, and I think this is what you see in places like Pakistan um, with Benazir Bhutto and Indira Gandhi, um, is if you've got a family member who's already done it, especially if you've had a father, a brother, a husband, fathers and husbands, um, then that paves the way for these women to take these positions. Um, and this used to be the pathway to political office for women in Canada as well, where their spouse would be the member of parliament, the spouse would die in office, and the wife would take the position. And then sometimes they would run again, and other times that they wouldn't. And so the Farida Jalalazai is the scholar that has looked at this, and she makes the argument very clearly that it's these family connections that's one of the main pathways to public office. Um, especially high-level public office around the world. Now, as a Canadian, I would like to reject this. Um, Kim Campbell did not have um, family connections. But if you, I, like I, Audrey McLaughlin did, uh, or Alexa McDonough did, right? And so this is the sort of things where, or if you even look at um, 
Belinda Stronach. It was having a father who brought her into a very powerful position in the corporate world that was used to give her credibility when she wanted to step over and become the first leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. So she finishes second. Um, yeah. So. I'm skeptical. One of the things I see in terms of the development of Canadian politics is this idea of family dynasties. This is why, um, yeah, like a Trudeau legacy. Part of me is like playing on the name. It gives me some discomfort precisely because of stuff like this. For Rachel Notley, I, I mean, the name recognition doesn't hurt, but in terms of me wanting to explain the 2015 uh, I mean, it might not have hurt for her emergence as party leader for the NDP in 2014, but also I would say that no, having read Hansard from like 2008 through to past the 2015 election, she's also an excellent politician. She's an excellent representative. Uh, and so I would not want to diminish her skills with that. So the name recognition doesn't hurt, but I certainly don't think that was necessarily like a driving force behind it. And this is, but this is one of these things that you watch where if it's somebody has had a political career and then you wait a couple of decades and it's their kid who's coming up. Like the question I have around that is like, sure there might be warm fuzzies about the first time around, but is this like the kind of dynastic politics? I am not, it does make me hesitant and it does make me suspect in part because it's not something that we typically see in more established democracies, which, yeah. My name is Terry Shillington. Melanie, thank you for coming back. It's always nice to be back. Actually. It's always my parents would wish that everybody would invite me back at a much greater tempo, so I would visit them more. <laughs> uh, I'd like your opinion on something. Uh, I think it's a custom uh, where, where where women are in uh, leadership positions in politics to to uh, leave confidential almost all information around threats and. Uh, uh, sexist uh, uh, attacks and so on. And I wonder what your opinion on that is. Uh, you know, we say that sunlight is a good disinfectant. Are we really uh, doing women a favor by keeping confidential and secret how many uh, threats on her life Rachel had, for example? Mm -hmm. So some of the reasons why a lot of this stuff is kept confidential is because all party leaders will have gatekeepers around them that make sure that the leader doesn't know. And so one of the things about that FOIP stuff about, um, like, so the prearranged funeral application, I have it on good authority that the premier did not know about that one and that her staff had to disclose this to her um, before the news story came out. And so I'm of several minds about this. Uh, as somebody who deals with my fair share of um, awful emails from members of the public who like to tell me how stupid they think I am whenever I say something in public, um, dealing, triaging with this stuff is really unpleasant. And so for me, I think it's really important that my employer know um, because I am employed by a public institution. But do I think it is worth the toll of the mental health of somebody to actually have to triage all of this stuff on their own all the time? No. Um, but that simply means that you're punting the problem down the line to uh, staff who, and so you still have to deal with the issue there. Um, I think that it is probably not unwise for politicians to not broadcast this a lot. So this is why I say the CBC in doing the freedom of information work on this one and then writing the stories up as the public broadcaster did a public service. Um, but what concerns me about this is that when I survey Canadians about how many of them are interested at all in a career in electoral politics, 95% of men say no compared to 98% of women. Now, usually when people talk to me about that, they want to look at the ambition gap between women and men and use that to explain why we have so few, so many more fewer women in electoral politics than men. I look at that and I say, 
Super majorities of Canadians, regardless of their gender, have no interest in being an elected representative. This should bother us because there are competing theories about representation, and I have to admit that I subscribe to the one where I think that everyday people should be allowed to be elected representatives, and everyday, we should be allowed to be represented by somebody who is like us. And I don't want to use the word normal, but I do want to say that people who are in politics shouldn't all be spectacularly high-credentialed high flyers, like regular folks should be able to see themselves in these jobs. And what we're hearing is that most Canadians really don't see themselves in that job. Now, part of it could be because the schedule is absolutely grinding, and I have to admit, for me, the schedule is what would kick me out of like you couldn't pay me enough to get me to fly to Ottawa twice a week like I just wouldn't do it um, you couldn't pay me enough to make me drive to Edmonton on that highway twice a week either right uh, so I mean that I don't think I'm alone in that but the other thing is that people will see what happens to politicians when they're in social media um, and they will read stories like this and they'll say why I'm a reasonable self-interested person, why would I subject myself to this? Not everybody needs to be power-seeking, I get that, but it should alarm us that some people take such license being so awful to people who have even a modicum of profile in the public that, yeah, I mean, my wish is that like people could just put a polite filter back on. Like, tell us that you think that we're dumb, whatever, that's fine, but like, there is a nice way to do it and then there's a not so nice way to do it. And because people don't seem to feel that some people don't seem to feel that kind of need to be kind to people in these spaces. It really does have a chilling effect for most regular people who are looking at things like, would I want to serve my community by being an elected representative? So the overwhelming majority of people are looking at this and saying, hard pass, that should concern us. And for people who are prepared to send the really snotty stuff to people that they disagree with, like. I have to say publicly that you're part of the problem. Like 95% of men, the people who are most likely to be elected, are saying hard no to these jobs precisely because of things that are structural, like the commute sucks, but also because people are really mean and nasty. Like children know better than this, so why do not citizens in a democracy know better than this? Like beyond this. I, do, like, I, I, I have limited patience about some things, and this is one of these things where I'm increasingly impatient about some people's behavior in public about these things. You can tell I probably have recently gotten a bunch of snotty emails from people who think I'm blindingly stupid. Um, when I have been, in fact, speaking from peer-reviewed research, and it's like, it's not my job to like give you a literature review for everything that I say. Like, I might have read some stuff, and I am speaking in a general way about it. Like, sorry. <laughs> Super grumpy. Yeah. Maureen Hawkins. And I'd like also to say welcome back. Thank you. Especially since you could have been our MLA if you'd no. won one more election. <laughs> no. I have to admit, I had been asked. Um, no, but you, you ran before. You, if you'd I, run I ran one more election. to get out of the, a job that I didn't like after my first degree was done. And then I was like, oh, I don't know if I like this so much. And then I went to grad school and discovered I liked that. Fun fact, though. While I was finishing my PhD, I was asked to run in Montreal, which is where I was based, and I had to get quite sharp with the recruiter because I said, I'm trying to finish a dissertation. Like, I have yeah. priorities. It is finishing this degree. Uh, and the, yeah, I woke up the next day being like, oh, no. Because I heard Ruth Ellen Brousseau, who was the one who was apparently, like, so unprepared to give an interview in French, and I was like, I've never been able to speak French that well. I still know the national anthem beautifully in both official <laughs> languages, because the person who taught me that in grade seven is in the room, and I want to say I do have that French still. <laughs> but, like, conversational French, I, I am very bad at it. Anyway, sorry. If possible, I'd like to ask you two brief questions. Okay. 
One is all the polls showed that Notley was more popular and trusted more than Kenny. What do you make of that and how can that be built on? Mm -hmm. So uh, things that we look at in terms of, and one of the things where the, our understanding of the gender dynamics of this particular thing is, is really poor precisely because we don't have a lot of women. Leader evaluations matter. Uh, and usually what happens are perceptions of, like voters' perceptions of a leader's character matter a lot, and their perceptions of a leader's competence also matter a lot. So I'm going to use Stephen Harper as an example. Everybody thought that he was really smart, but people were a little bit more reluctant to say that they would want to socialize with him, for example. I'm not sure many people in the lead up to the 2015 election thought that Justin Trudeau was super intellectual, but they liked him and they wanted to have a beer with him and stuff like this, right? And so Stephen Harper's career shows that you don't have to have sparkling leadership evaluation numbers to win and to win majorities, but if you have really good leader evaluations, that helps a lot. Partisanship does structure this, and I also think that the way that we perceive gender really structures this as well, but it is idiosyncratic, right? So this includes media as well. So the way that the media speak about um, leaders matters. So Christy Clark, for example, was presented as way more competent in a really positive way than Gordon Campbell, because we looked at um, women premiers and their media coverage in their first year compared to the men that preceded them. And Gordon Campbell did not, people thought he, they did not think he was very smart. I don't remember enough from that period to know why, but people thought Christy Clark was brilliant by comparison. Um, Jim Prentice and Rachel Notley, like as expected, the Notley numbers were lower. So looking in 2019, people found Notley to be more trustworthy. A lot of people, Jason Kenney's gonna have the same leadership problems that Stephen Harper did, where people are gonna be like, he's smart, but I don't know if I like the guy very much. Mm -hmm. But when you have an election framed falsely, between a choice between the economy and social issues. Every economist will tell you that these things are linked, like you can't separate the economy from social stuff, and you can't separate social stuff from the economics around it. So myself and my colleagues from the School of Public Policy were all just like, oh, this narrative is not helping us <laughs> in our work. Mm -hmm. um, but when it's framed that way, like when you and when people are angry about like not being able to have the natural resource economy like they have been accustomed to, then economic voting trumps. And economic voting always is an instance where incumbents get punished harshly. If the economy is good, incumbents get a bit of a reward. But if people perceive the economy is bad, incumbents get punished harshly. It doesn't matter who the incumbent is, and that's very much it. You can they can like you. So what we would hear was that people would be kind of like Notley's nice but the economy. And that is entirely consistent with what we know about voting behavior in a lot of contexts. Yeah. So if the economy goes south, yeah. Notley could come back? The NDP could come back? Maybe. Yeah, and, yeah, it's about perception, and it's also about anticipated change in the future economy, right? So 2015 is one of these things where everybody anticipated, like the economy was okay when the election was happening, but everybody anticipated it was gonna get bad. Mm -hmm. For Mr. Kenny, what happened was that they think that the economy is lukewarm or not, like they had a lot of 2014 boom nostalgia, uh, but they anticipate that with him it's gonna get a lot better, so. Did we answer your questions, Maureen? Yeah, actually my second question is, what do you think of Christia Freeland's future in the Liberal Party? So we had the benefit of having Katie Telford. Um, I don't think they would do this ever again after SNC-Lavalin, but Katie Telford came to a quiet closed door session of um, the Canadian Political Science Association annual meeting last Congress in Regina. And people asked about Christy Freeland. And one of the things that Christy Freeland um, likes is that she, if she's going to fail, she would like to fail fast, which is why she went into the by-election. And so I would expect that Freeland 
might seek party leadership depending on how things go in the next little bit, but if she doesn't get it, she's done. Yeah, as in like this is kind of, because she has other irons in the fire and she has other things that she can do. So um, if this is an instance where, and this is super hypothetical, like I'm not making predictions about like the liberals needing leadership contest or anything like that yet. Um, but like her political mantra is fail fast. So I would imagine that she would be seeking positions if they became available and if she didn't get them, she would move on to other things. So we have got five minutes and three questions. So we'll keep the questions very brief. Can I answers. collect the questions and then answer them in a bunch? Let's do that. Okay, cool. Can we do that? Ans ask all the questions and then we'll answer them all. <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is Peter Beale. And uh, what I want to say, so many of my friends, uh, women friends, uh, have opinions but don't want to join parties. I think that's what you need to build a critical mass of women joining political parties. I mean, if you don't like it, you can always quit and join another one. But the th that's the thing, to get involved. And I think women are actually better at social situations. You have to be more social. Like as liberals, we used to go out for coffee all the time. Just a bunch of old men sitting around, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have to get more women involved. So you want to comment on this whole idea how to get this critical mass going? so that women can more easily rise to leadership? Yes. Let's get the last two questions and do them all in a bunch. Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for coming. It was wonderful to have you back. Uh, my question is very simple. Uh, do you think uh, the NDP in Alberta would have been much better off to focus on all the good things they'd done rather than running a negative campaign. Hi, I'm Ken Sears. Um, we've, you've been talking this afternoon about uh, people running for a premiership, running for prime minister. Mm -hmm. However, there is another set of contests which is running for the leadership of a political party, which will have, by definition, a much larger sample size. Has anybody looked at that and the dynamics around that? Yeah, um, I'll do the last question first. This is what, where we know that um, women, so normally we would say when women run, they win, but this is if they're nominated candidates. We have no evidence of elector or voter bias against uh, candidates based on their gender. And I think it's emerging that we don't have a lot of evidence for voter bias on race either. Where the bias comes in is in the nomination process. And so we have good evidence that every single political party, except for the Bloc Québécois, and I don't understand what's going on with the Bloc, so we'll just leave them aside. Every other political party is systematically more likely to nominate men in winnable districts than they are to nominate women. So when we figured this out for the 2000 election, we anticipated that if the Conservative Party of Canada nominated women in safe seats at the same rate uh, that they did with men, 25% of the House of Commons would have been women in the Conservative caucus. This is why I'm really unenthusiastic every time we get to like 26 point whatever proportion of women in the Canadian House of Commons because if parties put women in winnable seats at the same rate that they did men, we would elect way more of them. And the, the really heartbreaking thing is that it's not about incumbency. Every time parties have open seats that are winnable, they have the same pattern. They're, they're way more likely to nominate men in these winnable seats than for women. So for, and this matters for leading political parties where you have to have, and this also links to that first question, you need to have profile in the party and you need to be seen as like potentially a competent leader to seek party leadership, right? Um, when we look at reasons why people join a political party in Canada, this is gendered. 
Um, doing this research is actually becoming increasingly difficult because not every political party wants us to study them. So Bill Cross, who's out at, uh, he's the bell chair in Canadian democracy, parliamentary democracy. He's like our best expert on political parties um, in Canada, and he's one of the best in the world. Uh, he used to work with Lisa Young, who was my master's thesis advisor and is also my colleague at the University of Calgary. When Lisa Young used to do this work with Bill Cross, every single party would participate. Now the conservatives don't want to participate. They don't, just don't want to be studied. So Bill has stuff to say, but he only has stuff to say about liberals, new democrats, greens, um, the separatist parties from Quebec, effectively. And so the question is, like, and when the Conservatives are in government, you really want to talk about, like, things that you can say about Canadian parties while you're not including the party of government in the study? Like, yeah. Anyway, from this work, what we find is that um, women are more likely to join a political party because somebody asks them to join to vote for a member of their family or for a friend in a nomination contest. Men are much more likely to, I mean, men also join because nomination contests, but they're much more likely to join spontaneously for policy reasons or for something along those lines without having somebody ask them to do it. We find once women are in a political party, they report being as active as do men. And so one of the reasons why I think it is really important that we get more people into um, political parties is that this matters for nominations. Really good research shows that if you've got somebody who's a woman or a person of color as your electoral district association president, those districts are way more likely to nominate women or people of color as candidates. And it's because people in like these leadership positions are recruiting from their networks. Um, so the work that demonstrates this for race literally was just published this year, but the stuff on gender was published back in 2011. So for people who are political party members, it's like recruit your neighbors who look like your community and then like get them into leadership positions in your associations. Like this is one of the key mechanisms that will make sure, make our politics look like our communities, right? Um, okay, the Alberta, the Alberta last most recent uh, election campaign in Alberta, things about campaigns. If you look at the American literature, there are three types of campaigns that people will run at the same time. There's the positive campaign, which is what draws your supporters to you, keeps them motivated. There's the negative campaign that might shake people loose from your opponent. And then there's the cynical campaign that keeps people who you want to stay at home, at home. Um, things I would observe, I don't know if there's great evidence about cynical campaigning in Canada. Uh, I find it like problematic normatively for a number of reasons, but one of the things I would note is that in order to have a really good election campaign, you do need to do the negative campaigning and you need to do the positive campaigning. People say that they don't like negative campaigns and yet they work. So I think parties can be forgiven for having done it. Um, things I think that were evident, absent from say, if I was gonna be really critical about the Alberta NDP campaign in 2019, it would be that the negative campaigning didn't include um, things about the economy because public opinion data suggested that people were not buying what Jason Kenney was saying about his ability to like do stuff with the economy. As an aside on gender, I can't imagine any woman in politics ever being able to use the word obsessed credibly and so I found it really jarring when Jason Kenney would say, I'm going to be obsessed with job creation. I was like, that's a verb that like, I can't use in a lecture. Like, it's just, anyway, leaving that aside. Uh, I think that the, I would say that the negative campaign was one note when it should have been several. And I think the difficulty with the positive campaign is that the NDP doesn't own the issue of the economy in 
Canada, period. And I don't know if he would have been able to get a lot of credible media coverage about the New Democrats saying, we did a lot of good stuff on the economy. Like, they could say it. They were saying it. It wasn't part of the narrative, and it wasn't part of the coverage. So, I mean, it, I could go into a much longer answer. This literally is like a two-hour lecture that I would give in the <laughs> elections class. So that's just scratching the surface. But yeah, like... Uh, a balanced negative and positive campaign is key. And then the question you'd have to ask yourself is what kind of positive campaign could have been offered that would have been credibly covered as a positive campaign? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. Melanie Thomas. <laughs>